Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Kavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals and all of these centennial things and all that stuff. And they all definitely count. And I'm mischievous Marchinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man and lots of other annuals and sidebar issues and one shots and yada, yada, yada. But Dan, for, for the sake of principle, I must repeat. The annuals don't count. Well, everyone, welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. And I'll add a sidebar on there, the expensive history of the Spider-Man comic universe, because that's right. Thank you for joining us for this review episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, today on the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 49, Legacy number 850. It's a perfect bound copy of a comic book, Dan. It feels like a novella. Uh, and it is written by Nick Spencer with pencils <laughs> by Ryan Otley, Umberto Ramos, and Mark Bagley. And then there are inks by Cliff Ray Rathburn, Victor Olazaba, and John Dell respectively. Colors by Nathan Fairbarn, Edgar Delgado, and David Curiel, respectively. Letters by VCs Joe Caramanga, and a cover by Ryan Otley and Nathan Fairbarn. Fairbarn? Fairbarn? I feel like uh, Bear Pig. (laughs) 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 Amongst an assortment of other variant covers, of which I got zero damn because we are in a pandemic, and I am just thankful I got my comic this week. Oh, Mark, I I wish I was you. I I bought five variant covers of this thing. I feel feel all the worse for it and and i'm a sucker and and they're born every minute but i'm one of them and i i got i got five of them so what what can i do this is losers and suckers dan losers and suckers (laughs) yeah well that 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 i cover both and uh yeah i got six six of these 60 bucks on on a good old smackaroos of spider-man so uh yeah you know what though i do feel a little bit better because this issue also features three backup stories all lettered by VC's Joe Caramagna. But first up is All You Need Is, which was written by Kurt Busick, with pencils and colors by Chris Bacalo and inks from Tim Townsend. Second is the story Four Shoes, which features artist Trad Moore in his writing debut alongside colorist Tamara Bonvillan. And thirdly, A Family Affair was written by Saladin Ahmed with artist Aaron Cooter and colorist Frank D'Armida. The issue that we're talking about today was first released on October 7th, 2020. Mark, this is Amazing Spider-Man 850. It only happens once. So long as 
editorial can't make it happen more than once. So let's just say this is the one. We're just going to do this week, essentially, with number 50, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that one's a $6 issue, so maybe not quite as painful. Mark, this is Amazing Spider-Man 850. What did you think of this big celebration of Spider-Man's 850th birthday? Is there a word for that? I don't think so. Let's just get to it. What's new? Like, I know I joked about it in the intro, but the the perfectly bound copy that they did instead of the stapling, I really like it. It feels it, it really feels kind of thick and momentous. I, I it has some weight and kind of it's kind of like a coffee table book version of a comic book. I mean, none of the other jumbo issues I feel in recent years have done that. And I just kind of like the feel of it, the, the weight of it in my hands. I know that's such a dumb thing to comment on, but like from a production standpoint, I, I found it really, really kind of cool. Did, did you have any thoughts on that? Or am I the only one who focuses on those kinds of things? No, it's really nice. I love that there's like a spine to these things. I mean, it makes me feel a little bit better about my expensive purchase. It's like, I got a real book here. You know, I do wish that like we could get like cardstock covers again, back again. I feel like if there's an issue to do it for, this one would be the one I yeah I think it's cool I mean it definitely makes me feel like I got something really substantial in my hands and you know hats off to the people in the spider office for for making this happen in in this way I mean you know I know that it's a lot of extra effort to get all this stuff lined up and for all the you know comments about like hey there's a bunch of different artists and maybe it doesn't feel quite consistently like one book but three kind of separate chapters I'm comparing it to something like Absolute Carnage, number one. I still felt like this was a really kind of stunning production from like just like a pure physically giving me something standpoint. Absolutely. But then in terms of the content stand, did the contents live up to the production of the issue itself? And I, I I'm going to start things off by saying on a broad basis, no, it did not. <laughs> and we will obviously get into the specifics as to why that's the case. But I, you know, I, do, do you want to, do you want to start the conversation, the broad conversation off Dan and I can follow because I think we have some very similar thoughts here. You as always are the more prepared one. So I, I would love to kind of play off of you here. Well, I feel like there's no way to kind of start this conversation without really kind of talking about the kind of marketing and spectacle of the 50th issue, you know, and what and what your expectations are for that versus like a standard issue of Spider-Man comics. There's something really substantial about hitting these milestones. And, you know, that's reflected in page count here. But then I think there's kind of whether it's fair or not an elevated expectation in terms of like what the story is going to deliver. I mean, first of all, we're paying ten dollars for the issue. And I, I know that marketing shouldn't drive art, but I feel like the marketing really pushed this as kind of like the end of this particular chapter of the story. And for me, I felt like this issue didn't really conclude in a way that I felt like, boy, 850, like, boom, let's hit, you know? There weren't really any big surprises or big twists or anything that I can really 
remember about this issue. Sure, I think the story is pretty competently told and there's some great artwork. I mean, really great artwork. Don't get me wrong. This is a beautiful looking issue of Spider-Man. But when I think back on like the anniversary stuff, you know, I guess maybe it's unfair to compare this to like a true centennial issue. But I didn't feel like as much of a celebration of Spider-Man as even the cover of this issue suggests with the the Otley characters. And that's a lot to kind of lay at the feet of this. But even for this story, it didn't feel like an end to it. You know, we're kind of back to where we started and to jump ahead. Norman is kind of right back in the situation he was at at the beginning of the issue with Sin Eater gunning for him. Overdrive and Nora, where did these characters go? Where did Carly go? To me, it's like for all the momentary joys, and there are a lot of them to be had in this issue, they're kind of met with a frustration that we're still kind of doing this. Like this story doesn't feel like it came to any kind of a head, except for one thing, which is that the, the, the narrative arc of these six issues seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mark, that this is all about changing Spider-Man's mind on whether or not it's worth saving Norman Osborn from the Sin Eater. You know, at first it was about like just dealing with the Sin Eater, but then this story has like morphed into a judgment call on Norman Osborn and Peter's reaction to how he's going to handle that. It, it, can he trust the, the Sin Eater to deliver a safe resolution to this Norman Osborn thing. And is that his place to step in and prevent it from happening? And my big problem, and I won't get into too much detail here, but like about how this comes about, but I don't feel like this issue at the end of the story earned the change of heart that Peter Parker has when, and if that's the entire point of this story and going on this six issue arc, I don't feel like it was earned. And to me, that makes it a big disappointment. I don't want to jump all over the place here, but let me just to kind of reflect on a few of the things you said. Let me start at first with kind of the broad picture of this as a celebration of Spider-Man. I guess, you know, to kind of just to kind of counter a couple of things you said to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. I guess what I would think is, I mean, it isn't technically a centennial issue. So like, I, I do think that, that there is a distinction there. I do feel like if this was 900 or 800 or what, you know what I mean? Like it would be expectations could be a little different. I mean, 850, frankly, is kind of the arbitrary new, you know, well, I shouldn't say new, but it's kind of like the 90s-esque, like, let's make this a celebration, you know what I mean? So, but I would say like, okay, you know, we, we, we pay $10 for this thing. We got three of the best artists in the business when it comes to Spider-Man in terms of Otley, Ramos, and Bagley on this. I mean, like, that's that's impressive in and of itself. And even even if you think the, the, the shifts between the artistic style, between the different parts was a little abrupt and kind of not great, which I might think it is, but, like, hey, like, where else are you going to get a main Spider-Man story with those three in it doing, like, their very own distinct things within it and, 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 and telling a story like that. You know, you get this Spider-Man Green Goblin team up, if you will, which is kind of I like I'm like racking my brain and I don't think we've had Norman and Peter truly teaming up to the extent that they did here. So that in itself is kind of like an event worthy event worthy story. You have a callback 
very significant callback to one of the greatest stories in Spider-Man history, which is nothing can stop the juggernaut. I mean, down to the point that they're, they're even talking about, well, the last time I fought this guy, which we can talk about how that's integrated a little later if you want to. But like, hey, like we're, we're, we're homaging Spider-Man history here. And yes, like in terms of the story that they were telling, we are not honored. I, I don't feel like that was honored in terms of like what's going on with Overdrive, what's going on with Carly Cooper, what's going on with Nora, Nora Winters. I mean, like that, that all is pushed by the wayside, but that sense has instead been replaced by bringing in the, you know, the, 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 what do we call the order of the spiders or whatever, which again, like, I mean, into the spider or, uh, yeah, into the spider verse, it's like one of the biggest things going in, in like connected to, spider-man right now so like hey we're, we're we're referencing that and making that feel like it's an event by bringing all these guys in at one time so like to me like i can see how this is justified from like those little bells and whistles it's like is that does that make this a good story no does this make us the resolution we were looking for in any way shape or form no but like th- there are elements here where you know, like on the surface, like if I'm like an executive at Marvel, I'd be like, what, what, what are you talking about? What are you complaining about? We gave you all this. And I could be I can I can say like, OK, fine. You you gave me a lot of stuff for ten dollars. It's just the stuff that I actually wanted. You didn't give me, which we can get into now in terms of like, what's the thrust of this story? You're absolutely right. It's like we're trying to sell us on this idea that that Peter, not even that he's a changed person, but it's like his ethics, his morality is so deep and is so is so pure there's a purity to it that like he he can stand by norman osborne despite knowing what he knows about him and despite having the history there like you i feel it it falls apart there i mean the only the only thing that i can maybe no prize my way through if you will even though i i know i'm the person who doesn't know the no prize uh <laughs> is deep callback d- deep callback deep call- our own deep callbacks you know like I'm, i was thinking about this prior to to starting tonight Anne, and it's like you know when you go back to the original senator story you know peter david's story in in the 1980s the significance to it in my opinion is the fact that like the sin eater if it wasn't for daredevil the sin eater is like the one rogue where spider-man was ready to cross the line like that like that that he pushed him so far that he's willing to cross the line and i find it interesting that a lot of this story is centered around the fact that spider-man despite the presence of the sin eater is not ready is 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 doing everything in his power to not cross that line again to the point that he's willing to stand by and defend his greatest adversary who is like literally telling him i am going to kill you when this is over because i hate you and he's still right, like whatever and then, and then actually to... does try to. yeah and actually he tries tries to kill and then does other creepy stuff but we can get into that later too and it's just like okay so like i i i am thinking in nick spencer's call backing mind because like you know i feel like this this whole arc has been Nick Spencer riffing on a lot of Spider-Man's historic past. He's probably trying to make the leap of, well, look, like here is the Sin Eater. This is the one guy that Spider-Man really let him kind of cross into that dark place. And he's never really crossed into that dark place again. I mean, not to that extent. And, and that's pushing the narrative here. But again, like that relies on you having know that story, having read that story, if not recently, just 
enough times to kind of remember all that as you're reading all this. And to me, that's a huge leap of faith because <laughs> it's like, you know, we're, 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 we're talking about fans who, what are they like? Maybe like have uh, like there are some po- there are probably some people reading this book, Dan, that that started reading Spider-Man before after you and I started recording this podcast, which was now, what, seven years ago. So, I mean, like asking for those fans to think about the Sin Eater and Stan Carter and Peter David's run on Spectacular Spider-Man in 1985, 86, whenever that was, that's that's a really big ask, in my opinion. So, like, yeah, I, I just don't think it works in terms of what what is being gone for here. And, you know, and if you want now, we could start getting into the individual specifics of that. Yeah, sure. Still one one last note on a broad sense is that like for me, the other thing about this issue is I felt like over the past two issues of Amazing Spider-Man, if you count the sins of Norman Osborn issue, which, which I do, I think that might as well just be a regular issue of Amazing Spider-Man. To me, this narrative was cleaned up so much, right? Uh, it, it, it presented us with a very clear picture of what the options are for our characters and what Peter Parker is choosing to do. And to me, this issue, like just starting straight away in chapter one of this issue complicates all of that and makes it less of a clear cut decision. And ultimately I think kind of hedges its way out of dealing with the problem that it's set up to try to deal with just in the previous issues. And to me, it's a bit of a dodge. It's, it, you know, like, everything has a back door out uh, to it that, that really kind of prolongs us kind of getting to the core at the heart of what the previous issue was. I mean, even down to the order of the spider and the decision that they had made is completely undone within the first few pages of this issue. So like, that's the other thing that really kind of bugged me was like, I, I, I knew what I was going to get. I was waiting to see if Spider-Man would be tested you know, how far would he be willing to go with this Norman Osborn thing? And I just don't feel like they use the Sin Eater to test that other than to use him as like the big bad boss that's getting in the way. And we'll get into all that. But more generally, that's a frustration that I had with this story. I know you want to talk a little bit about Ryan Otley and his work on this. Let's definitely do that. But can I just start things off by saying like, I mean, this comic starts off with, you know, kind of a look at Norman Osborn now and, and Peter's reaction to him. And, and, and like, you know, I know we've talked about this in some recent episodes, Dan, but like, I, I, I want to just get this out there again. Like, to me, it is just the utmost shame that whatever has clearly been undone from Dan Slott's last story on this book involving Norman and Peter and Norman's amnesia, thinking he's Cletus Cassidy and his kind of insanity. The fact that this, whatever, this all undoing of this and we're back to this status quo was done off the pages of this book, kind of separate from these two characters, because it's very clear here. Norman knows Peter is Spider-Man. It's like, like we're back to where we were in, in going down swinging. And it's like, how do we not get that story? in this book at some point that we're that the, the path back here like like i feel like there's just a major gap in that storytelling and it really ticks me off that like you know whether it's the ravencroft book or wherever the heck it happened that like i i have to now infer that all of that was undone and i feel really upset about that because i actually really liked the way 
Dan Slott kind of left where those characters were. And I feel like without having to see to put the work in to get us back to where we are now, it not only makes this story cheap, it cheapens this story, but it also cheapens Slot's work and, and how Slot wrapped up his run. Yeah, I really agree with that. I find it really frustrating. And I'm a guy who read the Ravencroft story. And I don't feel like in that story, it's really given all the dramatic weight that, you know, it deserves. I mean, this is Spider-Man's number one villain, if if you believe that, which I, I think everybody would probably agree. Otto and Norman share that spotlight. It took until this issue for me to really, truly understand what the status quo was, which is apparently... He knows Peter is Spider-Man, but doesn't have the influence of the Goblin formula affecting him right now, which opens up a whole host of questions that I have, even about this narrative. Like, we find out that he's not influenced by the Goblin formula. Just last issue, he was beating up guards like a super-powered maniac in the halls of the jail, right? So, is, I, I mean, are we believing Norman is just, like, really well-trained in martial arts? Fine. Fine, I'll take it, you know, but even bigger than that is, okay, so like the goal of the Order of the Spiders is to have this guy cleansed so that he won't hurt anybody anymore. Why don't we just keep him away from the goblin formula and get him the hell out of here? You know? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, what would he be cleansed from? What, what, what are they taking from him if, if he doesn't have the powers without the serum right now? Right. I mean, he's acting very rationally in this issue, right? Like there seem, there's like two very distinct Norman Osborns that show up in this issue. There is like early in the issue, very sane, rational. We got to work together, Norman Osborn. And then like a crazy Norman Osborn that can like put up with Spider-Man for the time being just so he can flip a switch and murder him when the time comes right. Right. That's the crazy goblin. So in, in my mind, like it kind of undercuts the cleanliness of like I was saying, the, the this story idea is like, OK, but now in the pages of this story, we have to watch Norman Osborn ingest the goblin formula. And there is no world in my mind where Spider-Man goes, OK, that is a like, a, you know, something I want to play with, like letting this guy get his hands back on that formula and risk this. But then it also comes down to like which interpretation of Norman Osborn you want to go with like was he a guy that was insane and uh was always insane and the goblin was just an expression of that or was he like a businessman with fits of amnesia that transformed himself into a crazy person when he drank the formula in my mind it lies somewhere in between but it is frustrating it, it's super confusing and, and and muddled and the stakes of this story are immediately cast into doubt by this question mark yeah because one could argue that if if Spider-Man is defending a quote-unquote powerless Norman in this story, and then you know they 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 survive this, and then you know Norman still does what he does because, like you say, he's just innately insane and hates Spider-Man. You know, to me, like it makes the 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 ultimate turn a little more sensible. It's like you know, no matter what, you can't be fixed. You know what I mean? Like no matter what, you're not worth saving. But instead, it's, you know, like you say, it's it's he's he's making a deal with the devil. But why? You know what I mean? Like, you know, the Sin Eater with the power of the juggernaut is considered, like you say earlier, this boss battle, you know, this big, bad, you know, endgame boss. But like, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't see why letting Norman take the goblin serum is part of 
how Spider-Man is going to get himself out of this one per se, the way, the way he was going into it, at least like it wasn't established up front, but that the only way that he can make right on this is if he can let Norman become the goblin again, and then team up with the goblin. It was, I need to protect Norman Osborn. So I, it, it makes no sense. It's, it makes great visuals. And now we can talk about Otley, especially that double page spread of him and the goblin. I mean, that's like, to me, one of the greatest two page spreads we ever got in this book. Right. Yeah, it's gorgeous. You know, I think it has to be said that it came out after this issue was released, that this would be the final issue that Ryan Otley would be working on. And not just Ryan Otley, like his his team of artists that come with him or have collaborated with him in the past. And that's Cliff and Nathan. And their work is just stunning. It was stunning and invincible. And, you know, to me... Look, I'm sad to see him go, but I'm happy that it ever happened. And I do feel like he proved himself worthy of inclusion in a conversation about some of the best Spider-Man artists. You know, even 20 issues seem short, but like, I don't think that Larson had much more than 20 issues, maybe like 25 issues. So like, I, I think it's definitely worth discussing, you know, him, you know, I would include Stuart Eminem in this conversation, but like... Boy, there there are no inks cleaner than Cliff Wraithburn's inks in in these issues. I mean, they are so great. And even even in this issue, and, and we'll get to Mark Bagley and Humberto Ramos, like those guys are superstars. Otley makes them look like chumps in this issue. His stuff is just on the next level. And you're right, this two-page spread, some lucky bastard is going to buy this online and have the best thing to hang in their house of all time. Yeah, pay a few grand for it. I mean, I and and like to to to, you know, Otley as a whole, I would say like no question like all of the Otley Spencer issues are my favorite issues of this run in terms of, you know, I I I feel like kind of the way Eminem augmented Dan Slott towards the latter half of Slott's run, I feel like Otley, Otley and, and Spencer were kind of in tune with each other and, and thereby told better stories together in terms of where does Otley stand on the Pantheon? I mean, his work is fantastic and 20 issues is a good run. It feels less than that only because of the way modern comics and especially how artists are used on modern comics are where it's like, you know, you talk about Larson yeah, Larson only did 20, 25 issues, but they were all kind of lumped together and ditto with McFarlane. I mean, you know, like like they were all kind of in sequence with each other and and like you really felt like they got their time on the book, whereas Otley would do a few issues, take a break, do a few more. And I, again, I know it's a double ship book that has a lot to do with it. But frankly, like I, I, I feel like when you kind of keep moving artists around like that, it creates a lack of continuity and therefore I feel like it cheapens their voice on the book. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Otley tweeted this announcement and this is what he wrote quote. I decided to jump off amazing Spider-Man end quote. It's not exactly a fond farewell. I mean, like I don't expect these guys to be like PR trained and stuff, but it does. It does. If I have to read into it, sound like at, at the very least, like what you're saying that when you say I'm going to jump off something, it doesn't really imply ownership. And they never really allowed him that kind of ownership because it was like this kind of cycle. And, you know, I, I can't imagine like JRJR when he left the JMS run 
phrasing it in quite the same way. I'm going to jump off of this book. You know, it, ma- it makes it feel like it's it's a moving train that he was just a passenger on. And I, I think he deserves more than that because his work was so stellar. But you're right. It is undermined a bit by the current state of comics and, and how, ev- you know, everything kind of works. The days of Mark Bagley and Brian Michael Bendis working together for how many issues in a row? Hundreds? I think it was 108, I think it believe was. I yeah, that's that, that sounds about right. I mean, I guess that's just long gone, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I mean, even looking back at it, like Mark Bagley had like a 40 some issue run on Amazing Spider-Man. You know, I, I, he's one of the most prolific Amazing Spider-Man artists that he, there ever was even though it doesn't feel like it, but this does feel you know, his stuff feels a bit like McFarland's stuff with Michelini, which is like, he got to introduce a really cool new villain, or at least we hope he's really cool in, in kindred and be a part of that kind of experience like McFarland did with Venom. I know that Humberto Ramos debuted the character in the pages of amazing, but I know that Otley was the one that designed kindred. I think he didn't really get to ever write any truly classic issues of Spider-Man. I mean, he wrote some really good issues of, Sp- you know, or he got to draw a bunch of really good issues of Spider-Man. But the same is true of, of McFarlane. I mean, other than 300, I wouldn't say there's really a truly classic story of Spider-Man from that run. But the artwork elevates kind of everything, you know, associated with it. All right, Dan, we're like what 25 minutes into this podcast and we're we're still like on like the first two pages so let's let's progress a little bit here we get our first kindred reference a few pages in clearly norman and and peter are supposed to we're we are being led to believe they're on the same page with who this character is so this i mean you know we don't have to play the guessing game about kindred because we've already did that in terms of our last our 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 guessing episode but like Again, like this is a character that has links to both of them for what that's worth. I would say that, right? Does that sound like a fair assessment? That's a really uh, nice way of saying that Mark was right. <laughs> we'll see. We don't. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But like, the more I read this issue, the more I'm like kind of coming into line with like things that you've been saying uh, about the book. We have Norman taking the serum. That happened. Uh, Juggernaut, he's like, you know, he's on the table. He's off the table now. That's a shame. I would have would have loved to see more Juggernaut, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, this is kind of like a staple of Spencer's writing. And one of the things I find frustrating about this issue, and I think we talked about it with the Mr. Negative thing. You're, we're bringing in these characters with no narrative setup other than teasing it a dozen or so issues ago. And suddenly... Here's the juggernaut. You're going to get one panel where you see his face and then that's it. He's just there to steal powers from. And to me, this also undercuts some of the stakes of this issue, too, which is like, hey, Norman is getting the special treatment of being saved by Spider-Man from the Sin Eater. But what about all these other people that are getting blasted with his magical shotgun? Did Spider-Man go like go all out? I mean, it whatever you have to kind of accept it for the narrative thrust of the story, but it is kind of like, okay, well, uh, you know, Spider-Man is conveniently overlooking all of these other people that he, you know, wasn't able to save. Right. I mean, if Norman was supposed to be quote unquote next, then where does juggernaut fit in? I mean, juggernaut, I mean, like, like you said, why isn't he saving the juggernaut? I mean, like, wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense to be like, 
screw Norman Osborn. I need to save the guy who's literally the unstoppable force <laughs> because if he steals his powers, we're all effed, right? I mean, like, like why, why not make a whole story about trying to stop him from stopping the, from blasting the juggernaut? I mean, that to me is a, a more compelling story in terms of the drama and the stakes of what's going on here. <laughs> Nothing can stop the sin eater from, from absorbing the juggernaut. Is that the title? I mean, it's not done off panel, but like it's it's so unceremoniously done. And like you said, it, it, it like the juggernaut is literally being used as kind of like a pawn here. Like like it, it, it's a total like let's let's not give a crap about character or stakes or anything like that. Let's just let's just move this story forward how we have to. Like, how can we make the senator a bigger threat? Let's give him the powers of the juggernaut without actually thinking through like how you would actually get there in a in a sensible way from a Spider-Man story standpoint. So to, again, like it's just it's just silliness and and there's a lot of silliness in this book that gets kind of covered up by really great art and a few interesting character moments between Peter and Norman the deeper into the book we get. Well, I mean the juggernaut in the corner of the room here is that it's just cheap nostalgic play. Right. Like we're not bringing back the juggernaut other than to make a reference to a, another great story. And I don't know, I, I guess we could talk about how much did all the juggernaut stuff work for you? I mean, like you said it earlier at the top of this review that like it's just aping nothing and stop the juggernaut all the way down to like we've got to bury him in wet cement. Did that work for you? Like to me, it just felt like kind of like a cheap play at nostalgia. Oh, 100%. I mean, but the, but the thing is, like, that's that's been a consistent thing with Spencer throughout this run, which I, I have to admit, I'm starting to become really kind of cynical and jaded to. I mean, I'm not trying to beat up too much on Spencer here, but the fact of the matter is, like, the Craven story was just a cheap nostalgia play. I feel like everything with Sin Eater here has been a cheap nostalgia play. Like, you know, like, he, he seems to be someone who really likes to show off the fact that he's read a lot of spider-man at least leading up to writing this thing it's not like dan slot who would frankly like you know we would kind of call him out on his continuity porn sometimes where it's like oh wow he's like really calling out some like random wacky storyline from like 1997 you know what i mean but like you almost kind of have to tip your hat and be like okay he, he's clearly a fan here where it's like nick spencer is he's calling back but he's calling back to like these very famous well-loved stories and it's like if you're gonna like reference and and homage them and stuff like that like you better dad be telling a good story here because like you're you're gonna pale in comparison to the to the original garment here you know what i mean like like i don't want to see a cheap imitation of craven's last hunt i don't want to see a cheap imitation of the sin eater story and i don't want to see a cheap imitation of nothing can stop the juggernaut those are stories that stand on their own they're fantastic stories why am i seeing another attempt at them here you know this all leads up to peter and norman teaming up together and just to get back to the whole discussion of the stakes of this i want to talk about spencer referencing back to his own stories like the, the ultimate narrative resolution of the hunted storyline was that Peter had to have enough faith in others to, to kind of operate on their own. And th in that case, it was the lizard, right? He knew that he could let the lizard go and the lizard wouldn't kill, uh, you know, his own son or Craven that like that he believed in the restraint of Kurt Connors. Right. And that was the kind of like the faith that he had to kind of let, let go. Right. 
but in here, Peter is like doubting himself. And he said, I didn't do this to create a new monster, but to stop another monster. And to me, I don't know that Peter would have the same faith that he would, that he wrestled with, with Kurt Connors and bestow that faith onto Norman Osborn enough to let him get powered up like this. Even if like the action scenes of them fighting together are really stupendous. I mean, these are beautiful pages and there's some fun details like Norman blowing the arm off the guy and it growing back. But that cuts to the core, which is like, Hey, I don't really like Spider-Man is immediately doubting it. I don't think that there's any world where he would like take that first step to allowing this to occur. He even says it in this issue when he's reflecting on Gwen's death and Flash Thompson's death, which again, we get that like visual illusion back to those events again that we saw starting in those absolute carnage issues. To me, it boils down to this and, and Dan, you can answer this or you can leave this as a rhetorical question, but like, do we ever really get it outlined or, or spelled out in this book? Why the only way out for Peter in this situation is to let Norman get powered. No, I don't think so. Other than the fact that like they're in one basement and they need to get to another basement. Yeah. I, I, I mean, like it, it's the, like there was never that set up. It's a, it's a key plot point. That's in my opinion. And now you seem to share it completely missing from this story, which is like to, to Spencer's credit in hunted, it was necessary for Spider-Man to let Connors become the lizard, right? Like, like I feel like that was spelled out. There was no argument. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I felt it was spelled out enough. But, like, it's not here. I mean, like you said, outside of, like, because it's really cool because Spider-Man and Green Goblin, they're going to team up. And it's an anniversary issue, so we got to do it. I mean, I know, like, Spider-Man's kind of getting overwhelmed a little bit at the beginning, but, like, it's not, like... Eh, you know, it's still like, hey, don't kill people. Oh, he threw a pumpkin bomb and this guy's it's I don't know. Like to me, it's very glib and and we don't get it put out there for us in a meaningful way. And, you know, it starts the whole story off on this kind of weird note where you're like, all right, so this is where we're going. Let's go buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of buckling up, let's talk about the order of the spider, because to me, this is kind of the bit where this train derails. I, I'm having fun with this issue overall. Like I, I'll look past the Norman Osborn thing because you know what? That art is great. And who's going to lie? You know, it is fun to see these two teaming up. Do I buy it entirely? No, but whatever it's 850. Let's throw a party, but every party has its poopers. And that's why we invited the order of the spider and man, they really bring this issue down. Every time, like every time they're on the pages, I'm like, go away. Like, I don't I don't want them here. <laughs> like, like you said, they're in this now, like kind of like, what do you what, what would you consider this? Like they're they're ethereal or 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 they're they're kind of ghost like here, which is just like making me cringe because it's going to be some kind of like we're the soul of the web of life or some nonsense like that. And I just want to like crawl into a hole and die when I see this kind of stuff in the Spider-Man book. Get it out like, of my Spider-Man comics. I do not want to read about the soul of the web of destiny. Just, I'm sorry. I know it's part of this, this universe. I don't want it. If I want Dr. Strange, I'll go read his stuff, but this is not, <laughs> come on guys. What are you doing? Like, like Spider-Man. Uh, anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, this this is just painful and they're still pontificating about whether or not they're going to 
interfere on this. And it's like, wasn't this resolved? Like, what? why are we still talking about this? Just shut up. <laughs> it's like, because like last time, the Order of the Web, Order of the Spider, whatever it is, they like were jumping off of a building in dynamic action. They were going to go and interrupt. And that was a... Like, we were teased that for two issues. Like, the end of two issues was, now it's our time, we have to stop Spider-Man. And then, okay, next issue, we're talking about it again. Are, are we going to stop Spider-Man? Uh, I've got some reservations. I'm Gwen Stacy. Okay, well, what do you have to say, Gwen? Okay, well, maybe, but we've convinced you, and you'll come along with it. And now we're back at it again. It's like, if you're going to tease that, at least we even plan to pay it off in some way. They don't even stand up to Spider-Man once. And you could say that Gwen convinced them, but boy, I guess third time's the charm for Gwen. They just keep talking her into it, I guess. I don't know. I mean, like, like she won't take yes for an answer. I don't know what what, what, what to say about Spider-Gwen here, but it, it's just cringeworthy and and you know, I, I would say the less is said is better, but we're gonna we're they're gonna come back in a major way later in this book. So I guess we should put a pin in that. Uh, what do we think about Otley's design of of the sin or not or whatever we want to call sin eater meets juggernaut? <laughs> I mean, yes, please. You know what I mean? I, I saw people online complaining that like, OK, the juggernaut's power isn't the shape of his suit, you know, and it's kind of absurd to have the sin eater look like that. But you know what? This is comics. And, you know, that's one of those things that like I, I know we got all hung up on like the motiva- motivations of like. Norman and all that stuff but like this is one of those things where it looks cool it's why Otley is on this book to draw grotesque looking things and weird stuff and he definitely brings a lot of weird back to Spider-Man and it's like what Ryan Stegman said when he came on the show it's like if you're not emphasizing the attributes of these villains you're making the rhino look like the Hulk you know or, or you're leaning into these kind of animalistic natures of these things. What are you doing? You you know what I mean? It's comics. And to me, this juggernaut character is grotesque and sign me up. And of, of the versions of the character, Otley's is the best looking of the three artists in this book. Oh, no question. No question. Yeah. I mean, it's a little weird, but I, 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 I dig it. It's good. It works. He starts like spouting off like, really like heavy duty stuff about Peter's guilt and, and offering him salvation. I mean, like this is what's, what's your take on some of this stuff here? I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, when he approaches them, like you're saying, he starts spouting off philosophy, which is kind of not what you want to receive from something that looks like that. Like that's not the, that's not the, the uh, like psych one oh one or philosophy one oh one class that I want to go to. But Sin Eater is the Sin Eater is gonna spout off about sin. And uh, he says, quote, look where your guilt has brought you. I'm offering you salvation from this monster and instead you stand in my way. End quote. And then the goblin responds, he is the predictable sort, isn't he? Such a bleeding heart, never willing to do what it takes. And to me, that we keep coming back to this, and this is at the heart of this issue, um, even if I don't feel like it's narratively like dealt with appropriately, to me, this is kind of, in my imagination, that card- cardinal sin that Kindred keeps going on, on and on about, which is like the idea that Spider-Man has so let his guilt over Ben consume him, and I guess all the other people who've died in his life, the ones we see in that triptych, which weirdly we never get an Uncle Ben in there. Although I guess he wasn't really killed by 
something directly associated with him putting on a costume, I guess. But <laughs> it's the idea, I think, that like Spider-Man has taken his credo or his morals or the great power, great responsibility too far, and that he's actually harming more people through his responsibility and bleeding heart than actually helping. That like at the end of the day, is it against Spider-Man's mission to allow the goblin to keep being the goblin? And by the end of the issue, it seems that he's changed his thoughts on this, even if I don't feel like it's earned. But to me, that's at the heart. And like Kindred even gets to this at the end of the book, which we can get to. But that the Sin Eater says this straight away. It's like, OK, this is the moral question that we're dealing with here. That's a great point, Dan. And, and, and I feel like, yeah, you're right. That's what we're kind of setting up here. I don't know if that gives us more answers about who Kindred is or not, but that's that's good stuff. So we transition to the second chapter, The Debt, and we bring on Humberto Ramos. I got to say, I, I, I think narratively, this was probably my favorite part of the book. What do you think? I thought that this was really fun, a really fun chapter of the book The kind of like this is paying off on the team up between Norman and Peter. And that's a fun dynamic to read. I, I have a couple of things that like kind of wrinkled with me, but I don't know if it's my favorite because I think Otley is a better narrative visual storyteller than Ramos is. And just the power of the cleanliness of his art won me over, I think, to that first chapter, even if I had my own quibbles with it. I also found the transition into this chapter really jarring. Like I had to go back and make sure I didn't miss something because we go from these two guys getting pummeled to them, like safely away from the sin eater having a conversation. And I found that like a bit of a struggle, but anyway, why did you like this so much? The transition was definitely rough, both narratively and visually, but like, I mean, like putting, putting yourself finally firmly in this chapter here. Well, first of all, like visually, and I think this was very intentional. Like I, this evoked death in the family a lot to me, the, the, the Umberto Ramos, Paul Jenkins story from the early two thousands. Like I think visually and just kind of like, just narratively, like, I mean, we're, 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 we're kind of dealing at least from Norman's standpoint, it's mask off Norman kind of waxing poetic about the history between Peter and Norman and, and, to me, this is this is where like kind of the callbacks to spider history actually made sense to me because I feel like, at least from Norman's standpoint, like I felt that his behavior became justified in this section where, you know, yes, Spider-Man is his mortal enemy and he's tried to murder him and destroy his life many times over. But like, you know, there's this sense of, you know, he still feels like he owes a debt to Peter for what he did, you know, when he first revealed himself to him way, way back during the, the Stan Lee Ramita run. And in turn, like he, you know, and he's always kind of had value in Peter. Like he's viewed him as an heir, as a, as a, a son he could, he never had. And that working together here is kind of finally his way of being able to embrace that side, even if he knows it's short lived. And like I feel like not not that there was warmth from Norman because there's never warmth from him, but like I don't know, like I just found the interplay between the two characters to be the most interesting to read here, and I felt I felt Norman was the most sympathetic here, and and like it made me 
feel like, okay, I now get why Peter is doing what he's doing. And I get why Norman is doing what he's doing, because I feel like the, the script here kind of lays that out. And the, the, the solemnness of the art, the quietness of the art uh, really kind of played off that and, 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 and made it count for me. I did think that Ramos's stuff was really restrained here, especially, you know, for a sequence which really could have gone for his kind of usual bombast. I mean, even the destruction of like Spider-Man pulling down the entire floor of the building was clean, cleanly handled. And I feel like you're right. Restrained and, and clean and, and somber is a really good description uh, of this. And I think it really shows, I mean, if, speaking of death in the family, you know, comparing the art from this book and that book, you can really see the, the monumental growth that Ramos has undergone over the past couple decades, which is crazy to say. I mean, Ramos has to be in the top three most prolific Spider-Man artists at, at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, I love all that stuff. I love the interplay between Norman and Spider-Man and how they don't really know how to work together because of course they would bicker while teaming up with each other. I, I guess I want to kind of draw, uh, you know, like uh, get into it with you about that. What, what I'm call, I guess, a bit of a retcon, this kind of a revealed history between Norman and, and Peter that Norman seems to try to, I mean, whether you believe him or not, is trying to kind of um, suggest that he was, like, you know, in his own, and he admits violent, twisted way, connect with Peter and hope that they could find some kind of shared grounds in their transformations into superpowered individuals. I just feel like for me, the trouble was we just saw 50 issues ago, two years ago, Norman finding out that, you know, Peter's identity and maybe he was so twisted because of the carnage symbiote and all that stuff that he couldn't rationally think. But in those stories, this guy had no reservations about how he treated anyone in Peter's orbit, including his aunt May, right? He was just out to straight up kill them. So this kind of idea that there was this unspoken debt that he's paying off between the two of them. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a way just to like to clean his own conscience in some way that Spider-Man has shown up to help him get out of this. But I don't really see Norman as a guy that really cares about all that. This guy is about power and power alone and even his viewpoint on Spider-Man has always been about, you know, Harry was not enough of a good heir for him. He wanted the power of Spider-Man to continue the Osborne legacy of the greater acquisition of power. The sympathy is great and it makes him seem like a more rounded character. I just don't know that I buy that that's Norman Osborne. Again, this is where the injustice of not explaining how we got to this point with Norman, the character, uh, comes into play. Because I feel like, yeah, if like we maybe saw some of that build up in terms of, well, where where is he in terms of his sanity? I mean, like, again, like tonally, this this stroke accord with me the way Death in the Family did. And, and for the record, Death in the Family is one of my favorite Peter Goblin stories, because even though Peter is tied up and, you know, like basically being tormented by Norman. There's like this weird kind of Shakespearean humanity to Norman in that story that I feel is kind of being reflected here. Like, like maybe his, his insanity and grandiosity is so overwhelming that like he kind of comes across as almost sane. 
<laughs> and I feel like that's what we get here. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's so, it, his insanity is so insane that like, it be, almost looks sane <laughs> by comparison. So it just, it just worked for me. Like, I, I just, like, I, I loved Otley's visuals far more, but like in terms of where the story was moving, this was my favorite part. Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, I, I say that it's hard for me to square the character between how, who he was 50 issues ago, but this is kind of what happens with uh, these characters. I mean, even talking about death in the family, I don't feel like that Norman totally matches up with other interpretations of, of Norman. And, you know, this happens. I mean, Norman, I think, probably has like one of the more consistent characterizations in, reg- in regards to Spider-Man villains. I mean... Uh, I mean, I, I would say that Otto has really changed, you know, you know, fairly much over the years. And uh, every time we see the lizard or Electro, they're a different character. Or they're written in a different way. And there's a certain certainly if you're a writer on these books, you both owe it, owe it to the history of the character. But I think you should be allowed to, to kind of reflect the version of the character that you like. And I do think you're right that that's what Spencer is doing. And uh, so I, re- I, I respect it. It's just it for me it was it was kind of hard to kind of the double whammy of the sort of like long lingering retcon that he was pulling here and this change in characterization really kind of like I, I had a hard time buying it, even if ultimately I think it's a far richer interpretation of the character than we've seen in a while. Although I think certainly I, I think he's less scary than the interpretation of, of Dan from Dan Slott in his final year. The, the goblin that would go to learn magic just to try to kill Spider-Man. This, this guy who has got this death vendetta that he's not going to, he's going to go to the ends of the earth to fulfill. Like it's a, it's different. It's different. And each one has its virtues. All right. Do we want to talk about part three here? So part three, your choice where we are now down in Norman's underground water layer where we, we in chapter two, we learned he has an EMP in there. This is Chekhov's EMP that <laughs> appears mere pages before it, surprisingly it's used. And, and, and for me, I mean, this is just kind of hedging it for me. Chapter three is where everything, I wouldn't say falls apart, but really just like kind of, if there's any problem I have with this issue, and I know that I've sounded nitpicky up to this point, but I'm still fairly enjoying myself. Chapter three is where like, I really kind of like the train threatened to derail itself in, in this chapter for me. This story is even with some of its warts is still a fun kind of, all right, cool anniversary story until a very specific point. Uh, in this chapter where I think it all kind of starts to really come apart for me, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. You know, we get, we get the very, so we got Mark Bagley on this as much as I love Bagley. I, I do feel like this was not his strongest work. This feel, it, it felt rushed and I know Bagley is kind of the fast guy, but like, even for him, it felt like it just wasn't very clean looking, if that makes sense. Well, definitely not compared to the start of this story arc, which I felt like was a really refined thing. And this feels like the pressure of deadlines or whatever really kind of got got up on him. It's still really fine work. And he does a lot of really artistic touches, like having the image of Gwen appear in Spider-Man's eye, like he did in the previous issue that he illustrated. There's some nice visual callbacks here. 
but it is a little kind of visually uh, confusing. I, I think like the geography of stuff is kind of all over the place. I don't think that the 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 size of the paneling is all the time appropriate. And we can get to that towards the end. I think there's one particular moment that is meant to kind of be a big pivotal moment, but the geography and the paneling makes it a little bit confusing. It's fine, but you stack it up against Otley. I think everybody is going to, is paling in comparison to the work that he did uh, at the start of this chapter. Or even some of Bagley's earlier work on this book over the last few months. I feel like it kind of pales in that, like this feels a little more slammed together they're, they're getting to the big conclusion, and basically they're trying to recreate in their own Chekhovian way how Spider-Man defeated the Juggernaut the first time, which was, you know, for those of you who are unfamiliar, he, you know, after repeated attempts to just try and take him down using various forms of brute force, Spider-Man tricks him into walking into wet cement and sinking to the bottom of it so that, in effect, Spider-Man stopped the juggernaut temporarily from moving here they're using what the emp to kind of create like this muddy wet ground for the juggernaut to sink into and of course in this case peter is like ready to sacrifice himself too to go down with the ship if you will if the juggernaut is the ship and save the day and i guess makes sense right from a callback standpoint I guess so, but like again, this this is this is like one of those things. Well, first of all, I don't know how EMPs melt uh, concrete, but fine. I'm not a science whiz, so someone can who's a physicist or whatever can 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 jump on here. I don't really understand the stakes of this scene, right? If 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 the goal, if if neither of them are in, really in danger of dying, right? It is all about just the senior shooting Norman with his cleanse ray. Why don't they hop in that like? vessel at the end and just hightail it out there. I mean, Spider-Man is willing to sacrifice his life to save Norman Osborn, but not even really. He's just going to buy him a couple of hours of time. He says it in this issue, like the senior is going to get out of this. The juggernaut got out of the last time they did it. Like, I just feel like the stakes are again, kind of unclear and muddled. And, and I don't know that I buy that Spider-Man would be willing to go to this extent to, you know, uh, to save Norman. And the fact that the book doesn't wrestle with that choice, which to me, like I said, is the heart of this whole story. Like, and Spider-Man just does it nobly, which maybe that's to Spider-Man's credit. That's why we like him is he doesn't really hem and haw of this, but it seems like that's the theme of the story. And so I just didn't buy this narrative choice. Yeah. I mean, it's also worth noting when he did this the first time around with Juggernaut back in the Roger Stern run, like it, it really wasn't, yeah, I mean, it was it was sold then as a short-term solution, but it also wasn't kind of presented as, like, Spider-Man risking himself. I mean, he was risking himself in that he kind of clung to Juggernaut and covered his eye holes to, to lead him into that. And, you know, he was taking very great physical abuse and breaking bones and whatnot to get to that point. So that was a risk, but, like... This idea like, oh, he's going to go down and, and drown in the mud with him was kind of like, eh, well, you know, then are you, you know, if you're killing yourself when you're only creating a short term solution here, are you are you even saving the day? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of kind of a little antithetical, right? Yeah, but he does like a moment later go, or how about I just live? So I, I, I appreciated that kind of jokiness that like. 
for Spider-Man, it's all or nothing. And and sometimes he's like, well, maybe, maybe not. But then there's a really cool moment where Norman, you know, well, you know, prevents him from saving himself and tries to drown him. And you get this really creepy framing by Mark Bagley where Norman's face is obscured in shadow. And you get this turn where the Norman, like, even as a reader, you you are kind of like lulled into, you know, acceptance of this. Like, oh, OK, they're teamed up now. Like and, 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 and I, I don't know that this was a true surprise, but it was kind of a nice twist where you're like, oh, yeah, this is Norman Osborn. And he felt like this debt was repaid. And we didn't even talk about the, the lifting image from Humberto Ramos with Norman Osborn, which was really stunning. The amazing Spider-Man 33 reference. I, I love that. That's one of those that I actually appreciated. But um, him drowning him in the, in the cement, I thought was really a, a cool moment. I don't love how it was resolved, but it was cool. It's definitely dark Norman the way we need him to be. I mean, it's the heel turn that I feel was the most justified in this story. Like, I mean, there was not a moment where I was sitting there as a reader being like, Oh no. I, I mean like, you know, obviously I'm upset for Spider-Man, but it's like, I mean, no, it makes total sense. And it, it was a great turn and it was a great moment to make that turn. But yeah. And like you say, like right in the moments afterwards, the cavalry shows up, here comes the order of the spider. And it's like, you know, well, what changed your mind or whatever? And it's like, well, we decided to let you get to this point, but then we're still going to interfere. Like, I, I don't like what, what I it didn't make sense to me. <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't seem I mean, I guess their thing is like, we trust you, right? That's that's the whole thing. But I don't know, like, hey, maybe if you guys showed up and help us helped us fight off the Sin Eater, we wouldn't have even needed to get to this point. Like, it's it's the it's the inherent problem with Madam Web as a character, which is like she seems to know about there's this big moment coming, but we don't know about it as the audience. And so we just have to take her word for it. But in the meantime, it allows them to do all kinds of like narrative ch- cheating to, to, to get these characters to do whatever the story needs them to do. And it's just not very satisfying. And it also has that kind of unfortunate thing where Spider-Man ends up being saved by other people at the end of like every issue. I think we picked on this, especially during the Dan slot run, which is like, can Spider-Man just have a victory? And I guess here he has the moral victory that he was willing to sacrifice himself for Norman, but it does feel a little cheap that like out of nowhere, these people suddenly show up in Norman's secret underground layer that's buried in layers of rubble. How did, did, did they magic themselves into this room? Like, uh, for a book that's so obsessed with the physicality of someone drowning in cement, how did these people just show up? I don't have an answer for you, Dan. And it gets worse from there <laughs> because <laughs> now we have, you know, they, they web up Norman and it's like this, like, you know, this whole painful sequence where they're all traveling together. And then Norman sees spider Gwen and, you know, hears her referred to as Gwen and, you know, like, hey, if you want to talk about Spider-Man continuity, Norman Osborn obviously killed Gwen Stacy. Plenty, plenty of plenty of good story to mine from there. One of the greatest stories ever told in terms of comics. But instead, we get a little bit of that. But what they really kind of hit on is sins past. <laughs> and you just go, 
And for the uninitiated, Sins Pass is a story. <laughs> I'm going to tell them, Dan, because they need to know. Our audience needs to know if you don't know this story. Sins Pass is from the mid-2000s, from the, the J. Michael Straczynski run. And basically, it was this humongous retcon where Norman Osborn slept with Gwen Stacy and created Demon Spawn. The two twin, uh, a pair of twins that was going to, you know, trying to kill Spider-Man in revenge. This has since been a story that really has never been referenced again <laughs> um, until now. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of a reference to it in like the American Sun stories from the brand new day. But, uh, you know, and I think um, like I think Gabriel Stacy even got his own miniseries at some point, which I, the less said about the better. Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably read this scene without knowing about that and, like, just think he's being creepy. But there's no other way to read it. Like, the close-up on his smile, it, you know, it, it is since past. And we've often said on the show that that's, like, the third rail of Spider-Man comics, right, right next to, like, bring Uncle Ben back from the dead. And, you know, we went there, and I just feel like... I feel a couple things. First of all, it, it's, and this is not Nick Spencer's fault is that like putting spider Gwen in this situation, who is a character that's younger than the original Gwen ever was. I mean, I'm not a teenager. She's in college. It's just a, a gross thing that like, I mean, even if you discount the like eight years or whatever it is that has transpired 10 years, that's transpired in the history of Spider-Man comics, on whatever Marvel's sliding scale is, Norman is way older than he was in the situation where he slept with Gwen. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's, it's an even greater disparity in age, which makes it even creepier. But then, and I, and I, I, we have not really mentioned this on the show, but I feel like if there's a time to mention it's now, like, you know, there's the real world creepiness of what's went on with spider Gwen's creators. And, 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 uh, and I'll say it because they they were are and I guess are friends of the show if that that is a qualifier. Uh, I've not obviously spoken with Ravi or Jason, and I don't intend to, you know, with current knowledge that we have. But it is gross, and that character has gone through a kind of gauntlet, I guess, this year, if if you will. Although I do like that Spencer gives her 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 own, uh, you know, uh, authority here. She's like, I don't need you to to protect me. And she kind of takes it to Norman in the scene. And I like that she's given her own agency to stand up to Norman, but it's like, I didn't need to read this and I didn't need to think about this kind of thing. It's just gross. And then narratively within this story, I feel like this is where this story starts to cheat, which is after this Spider-Man, this, this is the moment. And look, I agree with Peter. This is really gross. Uh, you know, and, and and enough to make me turn on on Norman, but I just don't believe that like Peter would ever forget who Norman is, given their history together. Like that, he's reminded of Norman being gross here. It's like, did you really need the reminder? And and it's not enough for me narratively to understand Peter's actions that happen next. That it's enough to change his mind. It's super gross, and Norman touches what we call the third rail of comics, but I don't think Spencer did the work to change Peter's mind because if he worked with Norman before, I feel like he's already accepted what is happening in this moment. 
Yeah, I mean, it's part of the biography for sure. I, I agree with all that. Um, I mean, I guess the only thing I might want to like nitpick a little bit about was like I, I, I kind of that moment that you referred to in terms of like giving Gwen her agency. I kind of had the at the opposite reaction to that. And not that like I didn't think that Gwen shouldn't be able to stand up for herself. But given where they went with it, storyline wise, like it really kind of felt like a to me, like a tone deaf way to kind of walk it back a little bit and like to me it was like no 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 you already like made the sin spencer in terms of going there like like why are we bringing this up like like to me like if you just had norman taunting her about well i killed you once i could kill you again and then go you know and have gwen kind of be like i don't need you defending me peter like to me that i would have bought but it's like to kind of i mean you know it's also worth noting putting aside the real world stuff and everything like you know Spider-Gwen, when she was first introduced six, seven years ago, I mean, like, it was very adamant that this character was not going to be sexualized in any way. And, like, I feel like they that Marvel has been very consistent about that. So to kind of go there, I, you know, like, it's a really crass, crude way to treat the character. So, to, like, to kind of, like, then throw her this bit of agency after basically kind of stripping her down the way they did. I mean, pun maybe intended i don't know I, I don't know like it's just like it didn't work for me I, I i like at that point like it really took me out of the story and it would get worse from there in terms of just narratively in terms of structure it just it, to me it's the it, it truly epitomizes why the story went off the rails for me it's like you know why are we why are we bringing this up why are we then trying to like kind of like give gwen some stuff back i, I don't know like it's just it's it was just dumb. Like, like, come on, Spencer. Like, knock it off. Like, we get it. You read, you read all whatever hundred issues before you took over. Like, just stop. Just stop. We don't need these references. Just stop. He's a villain, right? Norman Osborn is a villain, and villains should be allowed to do bad things. But I think everybody just agreed that that was like a chapter that was best left forgotten from Spider-Man history and that the error in that story wasn't even, and I don't know who to blame because you can read stories about editorials interference into what sins past ultimately would be. And so I, I don't know. I mean, it, the story ultimately bore JMS's name in, in some regard. I mean, he, I'm sure he could have taken his name off the book or who knows what kind of pressures there, there were there. And so like, I'm, I'm sure that, Spencer feels like, okay, like that was someone else's doing and I'm just referencing it. But I think in referencing it, you are reinforcing the kind of gross treatment of that character from, from back, back in the day, even if it wasn't ultimately you who pulled the trigger on it, you are, you are the, the first person in over a decade to, to drag that up. And you know what? Maybe he, he might like the sins past storyline. And I think I like that storyline more than most people until you get to that a actual exact point. I don't know. You're right. I mean, it is just kind of, just kind of gross. So, so, so moving on from that, you know, talking about Peter's decision to change his mind, we get these kind of like flashbacks or imagined scenes where, you know, th this awakens in Peter that Norman will always kill someone in his life. And, you know, I, Whatever. I'm going to put aside my my scruples here because I do think that in Nick Spencer's mind, this was his moment of trying to address the thing that I've complaining about. And even if it didn't work for me, there is some 
some uh, value to it. And you see this triptych again that we first saw in the Absolute Carnage issues of what I think are Gwen, Harry, and Flash. So you get this hand on a doorknob. You get Harry's hands when he's dying in Spectacular 200. And you get Flash's death from Amazing Spider-Man 800. This triptych of characters dying. You know, we've been talking about this in relation to Kindred. Cue that Kindred alarm. Ring-a-ding-ding. You know, to, 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 to me, this this was a, a you know interesting moment. Mark, what was your read on this? And I, do you think I'm right? Was that Gwen's hands or was that Mary Jane's hands from the end of 122? Like, what did you make of that image? I, I took it as Gwen. I, I don't know. When I, when I always think of, you know, we saw this in one of the other issues, too. I mean, we keep seeing Harry's death from Spectacular 200 as kind of being grouped in the, the big three of, of Norman's killings, you know, Gwen. Gwen, Harry, and Flash. Um, but in reality, I mean, Norman was responsible for Gwen and Flash and Harry kind of his own, I mean, you know, his father pushed him into his madness, but like, it wasn't like, I mean, Norman at that point was allegedly dead. So it's a weird kind of way, way to group them together. But like, I mean, in keeping with the theme of the story that we've been telling from the get-go, it's it's Gwen, Gwen, Flash, and and harry and then kind of mj as the one that's still with us so i mean in terms of the people who are dead no i i took it as a gwen thing i didn't think that i didn't find it ambiguous but i i I get what you're saying it wasn't entirely clear i mean i figure it's the moment before she opens the door to peter's apartment and the goblin kidnaps her like that was probably my read on what that exact moment was that was being depicted I think that's fair. Yes. Yeah. So Norman's got this great line, like, we wouldn't want you to snap, would we? Which I thought was really twisted and great. And that's what triggers Spider-Man to throw him out the craft. And I'll say the first time I read this, I had no idea what that meant. Like him just throwing him out the, the window of the craft. Upon rereading it, you know, it is clear that they are still down in the un- underground layer. And he is throwing him to the Sin Eater and has changed his mind. He's not going to protect this person anymore. In my mind, it's a dumb decision. He should just web the dude to the wall, get him out there and turn him into the police. Because now he's letting the Sin Eater power himself up even further, if that's to be believed. But I can understand one's emotions getting the better of you in this scenario. But then there's like this weird Madam Web thing where she's like, you didn't make a different choice, but it's too late now. And that's the kind of bullshit that <laughs> part of my <laughs> French that that like just endlessly frustrates me about that character. What do you think of this big moment for for Peter? Well, I mean, first of all, like like you mentioned, it's visually unclear to me. Like I read it like I, I, I certainly got the sense that Peter disposed of Norman <laughs> Like got him out of the situation, but it was very unclear to me. Like we said, wait, what did he? Did he? Did he hit him into something or out of something? Or it, like, like it was just visually muddied, you know. To me, like you said at the beginning of this of this segment, maybe it was the geography of it, but whatever, whatever it was, it was not well rendered, which is a shame because Bagley is pretty awesome. So that's the first part. But yeah, like, like, what the hell does that mean with Madam Webb? Like the whole, like, like you said earlier, like 
we've gone this far. It's not like Peter suddenly started thinking Norman was a great guy. The dude tried to kill him like five seconds earlier. And it's like, so that was the breaking point. Like, like, you know, at this point, why is that the breaking point more than anything else? Like I, I, it's just, it defies logic here, Dan. It's just like, we are advancing the story without thinking a damn for character. And I just hate that so much. (laughs) Yeah. And again, like I said, at the top of this episode, it's like this to me was as much as I enjoy. And I think, I'm trying not to come across as too negative on this issue because I think ultimately I had fun with it and it took me like the second read. I really came around to a lot of this issue, but the thing that stands out to me is like, this is the fundamental problem with this story is I don't buy this action and all six issues of this story to me are leading to this action. And if you can't sell me, on why Peter would have a change of heart after going through all of that, like then you didn't do the work completely. And, and it's tough, right? Cause I can see Nick Spencer writing this, having those really great moments, ha- having that great line from Norman where he says, we wouldn't want you to snap. Like that's all really twisted, but it wasn't enough for me. And that's all I can say as a critic was it wasn't enough for me emotionally to get to this point or to understand why Peter is acting this way. So then, of course, we see Kindred again. Kindred alarm, right? <laughs> Cue that alarm again. Yeah, this time Kindred is back in his graveyard. And if and if you had a keen eye, you'll notice that the, uh, the, the names of all the artists on this issue were on the tombstone. So you got like, you know, Otley and Ramos and... Bagley. This, this is Otley's final book. Then it's fitting, right, that his name will be on a tombstone. By, by Otley, we we hardly knew ye. Uh, I thought that was a fun little Easter egg when they do things like that. And to me, this was one of the stronger scenes with Kindred because I really feel like thematically with this issue and this appearance of Kindred, they are actually in lockstep with each other. I, I, I feel like we're getting at that thing, right? I mean, I wanted the reveal of Kindred in this issue. Maybe we'll get it next issue. We're definitely going to, I think, get it in the next six issues where we're doing a whole a whole Kindred arc. But to me, I, I feel like, and Kindred spells it out, is that Peter has like sacrificed on his morals and doing one, one wrong to do so much right might seem like a good idea in the short term, but eventually it catches up to you. But then the the question comes back to it again what is the cardinal sin that Kindred is referring to and has been referring to all this time? What is the one time that Spider-Man sacrificed on his morals to help a broader universe other than what he just did in this issue? And whatever that is, that's the secret to who Kindred is and what Kindred wants. You know, and then there's the Kindred isn't standing in front of a grave, which to me suggests like Kindred is a person uh, which I think goes against what Spencer has been saying, but or, or at least that person's death is the time that Spider-Man made this moral sacrifice. Is that is that how you read this, Mark? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you 100 percent. And I think it still kind of goes with my theory on who Kindred is. So I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of how you feel about the Kindred thing being prolonged and I, I find it frustrating. And Mark, you had a great tweet about this earlier today. Do you, do you want to say what you, what you tweeted about? 
which tweet? <laughs> I had a couple. Uh, the in terms of the the monkey. Oh, about the hobgoblin. About the oh, hobgoblin. I said that even the hobgoblin, which I think we've kind of all accepted. The, the original reveal during the 1980s was one of the most botched reveals after so much buildup. I mean, they did that in 51 issues. They draw, they dragged that out. And, you know, guess what? You know, next issue is going to be the 51st issue since the uh, Kindred was first introduced by Nick Spencer. You know, if you're if you're going to drag this out for this long and, and think you're still going to hold everyone's attention or, or go longer... It's a very interesting strategy, and I I don't know how that's going to work out for you. That's that's kind of I think just of my tweet, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now I do want to acknowledge that comics are very different now, right? Where this book double ships, and you know I I tend to think these kind of mysteries are a little more prevalent than they were back then because like imagine waiting over four years for the reveal, and and we might have to imagine that. In the case of this book, I hope that's not true. Yeah, I think your point is well made is that like some th- these stories and I think especially how this one has been handled with so little interaction between the characters. It, we're at the breaking point for this thing. And I, I hope the next story reveals what is actually going on here. But I, I did want to tip my hat. I felt like in terms of like the random asides to Kindred, this one at least felt like, OK, we're getting closer to this and thematically the kindred stuff is lining up with what is happening in the book, you know, uh, in, in the current story that we're addressing. So anyway, that is amazing. Spider-Man eight fifties main story. Let's just like breeze through these backups. Cause I don't think that they need much more of our uh, attention than just that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a terrible lot to say about some of these. I mean, we got a, a fun one from Kurt Busiek and Chris Bacalo here kind of an untold tales thing called all you need is not too not too shabby right <laughs> yeah i thought this was fun i mean uh bacala was born to draw living strawberries i mean that was a really fun kind of visual invention i still with bacala i find him really hard to comprehend his storytelling a lot of the times I read something like his doctor strange and it works for me but for some reason anywhere he elsewhere i always have trouble with him even if I like find his style really alluring. I mean, I brought, I bought his variant cover because I thought it was cool looking. Uh, and then the other thing is like, as much as it's fun to get a music back to do a untold tale story, I don't know what this has to do with the current continuity. It's an inventory story about the Beatles of all things. I don't really know. Is there some anniversary that I should be aware of? Fine. I mean, like I'll always take another untold tales from Kurt. I don't know. It's a backup. So I, I shouldn't beat up on it too much. All right. So the next the next story is Four Shoes, which was written and scripted by uh, Trad Moore. Is that correct? Yeah, it's his, it's his writing debut. How do you think he uh, did? It's an inventory backup story, Dan. I mean, it really didn't leave a huge impression on me. Do you have a do you have a bigger impression than I did? <laughs> Well, I really like Trad Moore, and he works with uh, Donnie Cates a bunch. Did you read his Silver Surfer Black? Uh, no, I have not yet. I have to check that out on, on Unlimited, I know. I can't implore you enough to check out that book. I mean, Trad Moore is a really cool artist, and I think there's some really cool stuff here in regards to Spider-Man, how he does like the multiple Spider-Man in one page, like zipping through his own webbing, and it's really electric. But I don't really know what is up with this story about this dog wizard named Tina Four Shoes. And whenever I read a story like this, I think, 
okay, Tradmore, this is your writing debut and you get to work with Spider-Man, like the biggest character. I just, it makes me wonder like, wh- like what it is that compels people to write these bizarro stories that they write? Like, is this really the story you wanted to tell about Spider-Man? And I guess to me, it's just like some of these people are less sacred about it and they're really just going off what they're, they're an artist, right? They're going to express what they want to draw or what they want to express. And, and it's different than like, if they say handed you or I the ability to write a short Spider-Man story and how much we would like probably beat ourselves up to make sure like it's, it's the definitive take what we want to say about the character. Cause this doesn't feel like a Spider-Man story to me as much as I enjoyed his art. And then the last one is a family affair, which feels like uh, what kind of a left out sidebar from friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, maybe. I mean, wh- wh- where did this thing come from? Yeah, I mean, that's what I think it was, if, if anything, maybe like a few pages of script. I don't really know like what this was doing here, because like, you know, Starling, this granddaughter of the Vulture, debuted in Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. We haven't seen much of this character since. So if you're not reading that book, you'd probably be pretty confused here. That's beside the point that I think Vulture both has too many children and grandchildren and all of his stories involve him and children. It seems like uh, I don't really know why this character has such a such a expansive list of progeny and how this child grandchild of his doesn't know that he's a bad guy is a little bit beyond me. You think you're able to Google that pretty regularly in, in, in this universe, which is the resolution of this tale. I don't know. It felt like a kind of perfunctory. I mean, look, Cooter is a great artist and I love his Spider-Man. I think back to his avenging Spider-Man story with the hypno hustler and Deadpool. That was a lot of fun, but this like didn't, didn't really do much for me. All right, Dan, do we have a grade for this whole magnum opus? You know, the first time I read this story, I was really struggling. I was, I really didn't like it. And I was like, this is like D minus territory for me. Uh, I was just really frustrated. But I will say on a reread and a talk with you, I don't think it can be so easily dismissed. I think there's a lot of really good stuff here, even if it doesn't all click together for me. So I'm going to say like, it's a B minus for me. I, I, I had a good time with it. I just wish it delivered more on the payoff. And I hate to keep saying this, punting the ball down the field. Like these subsequent issues had better really deliver on all this stuff. Cause eventually that D minus is going to come to roost because I'm going to feel frustrated, but there is again, the characters are pretty great in these stories and I'm willing to go with it. I, didn't really come up or down on it from one read to the next. I I, I feel pretty stable in what I'm going to say. I'm giving this one a C minus. I feel that the artwork, especially the, the first two parts, elevated it. I feel that the Norman and Peter stuff was fun. But at the end of the day, uh, the story is kind of an abject failure in terms of what Spencer is going for here. Similar to you, I would just say that like... My, my patience is officially done. I don't know what can be done at this point to kind of get me re-engaged in Kindred and what Nick Spencer is doing. But like, you know, I feel like we have been kind of lurking in this territory long enough now to kind of be like, I feel very disengaged as a reader. 
I feel that my needs as a reader, as the audience, are not really being acknowledged here. There's still enough there to kind of be like, all right, well, it's not a failure. It's not it's not an F. It's not. But like, you know, like to me, this is almost like it's just as bad because it's like I don't care anymore. I'm going to say it right here, Dan. I'm very disappointed in this run. I feel that Nick Spencer has really dropped the ball. I don't know if this is being driven by editorial or if this is strictly being driven by him. But I I feel that, you know, my concern when he was first announced on this book was that he wasn't going to be big enough for it. And I feel that a story like this demonstrates that to a T. I don't think there is going to be a save here. I think this is just where we're at. This is just mediocre stuff. It's better than Mackie Byrne, so I give it that. But like, it's not that much better. Jeez. Uh, well, no, I it's just just it just is what it is at this point. Like, you know, these these aren't like horrendously terrible stories the way the Clone Saga was. But like, I don't I don't think Mackie Byrne was as bad as it was either. I think it was just not memorable. And I feel like twenty years from now, we're gonna view these stories the same way. This is very not memorable stuff. And I think people who are pining on to something here, I think are still kind of holding on to their dislike for maybe previous creators who worked on this book most recently to it. This is just not great stuff. This is just really mediocre, not memorable stuff, not worth my $10, but like this is where we're at right now, but it's C minus. So, I mean, I guess that's redeemable. I don't know. Where are we going next? I don't know. I don't know what could be done in the book, in the pages of this book that are going to make me turn around and be like, damn it. He had me the whole time. I just I just totally underestimated him. I just think this is what we're getting here. I think this is someone who just can't rise to the moment with this character. You know, we're going to just have to live it out for a while, I guess. So that's it. I hate to be so negative, but like, I'm sorry, guys. Like, I'm just done with kind of waiting for the great Nick Spencer to shine on this character. I just don't see it. You may have moved me to a C plus because as you're speaking, I'm having acid flashbacks to the order of the web. I'm not nearly as despondent as I was during like volume three of amazing Spider-Man and portions of uh, volume four when we're getting stories with like Shu Lien and things like that, that just there's no attachment to character setting place and status quo. And so maybe I'm, I'm like overly for, for, forgiving to this. And maybe I'm just like overly looking forward to 851 redeeming this in some way. I'm not quite ready to give up, but, but I, I am, my patience is wearing thin. Uh, yeah. I don't know that I would even compare it to Mackie Byrne, but I do think there is a dearth of truly memorable stories happening right now. It is functional Spider-Man stories with a solid grounding in the history of the character for good and for, for bad, that makes me feel comfortable, but not excited. And uh, you know, this is a comfortable issue of amazing Spider-Man. I mean, I've seen way worse than this. I mean, I would even like, you know, cast back to like, I don't even want to say the clone saga. I would say like nineties stuff like this to me is like Michelinie. It's not bad, but like name one story other than Venom for Michelinie that you remember, you know, that's fair. Um, I think that's fair. I mean, it's just funny because like, I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, oh, I made a comment on Twitter and, and, you know, the other one that I was referring to was I, I, I sometimes, 
you know, in recent days, I felt like this run, the Spencer run, is kind of the equivalent of like the monkey's paw wish for us getting Dan Slott off the book. Now, this is not me trying to hate on Dan Slott, but like the fact of the matter, as you referenced in your in your opinion earlier, that, you know, once Superior was over, there was probably more bad than good when it came to Dan Slott. I am not going to argue that. Uh, I don't I don't dislike him the way other fans on the Internet seem to dislike him on Spider-Man. But like, you know, there was there was some and, and towards the end of his run, I think we were kind of in agreement that it was time for someone new to get on the book. But like I feel in wishing that away, you know, the monkey's paw for those unfamiliar, you know, it's a it's an old tale about finding this paw that grants you wishes but like the wishes you get are kind of like twisted versions of of your wish being granted like you wish for money so someone in your life dies and you get their inheritance and i feel like that's what we're dealing with here it's like okay for all of slot's flaws like he he really had a knack for telling stories that were memorable even if they were memorable for being bad <laughs> you know what i mean like like you you, you they, they stand out to you and there there was a lot of plot and he didn't sit on things for too long. He didn't string you along too much. He didn't, he did, he pulled the trigger on stuff and, and like all of his loose ends generally were tied up, whether they were tied up in a good way or not. That's another argument. But like, you know, I feel like with Spencer here, we are just getting these long drawn out tales that aren't necessarily going anywhere. We're just bringing up things to, to play with continuity and it's just frustrating. Um, you know, like, I, this is not the change I was looking for. Like, I, I, I want those confident stories, but like, you know, I want, I want to recognize the character and I want memorable stories. I mean, like, I, I think that's what we're dealing with. I don't think we have either here. I don't think we truly recognize this character anymore. And I don't think we're getting that many memorable stories. So anyway. Do we want to transition out of here, Dan? And, and yeah, Mark, why don't, why, don't, why don't you bring, bring us home? We're approaching two hours here. It's that time. Time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, as always, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Busama, and Ray Sumzer. And our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. This episode was originally released on Patreon. It's a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So if you'd like to help us support the show and our continued existence and these reviews while joining us on the live stream, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign up? So, Mark, until we get a Harry Potter book about the order of the web, what is our motto? (laughs) Of course, our motto is with great podcasts, there must also come... The Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next